right, it's time to turn to the dechristianization of France. And the most essential thing to say, and this is happening again, right? This is the cycle of eternal return. During the tumultuous times of the French Revolution, you could say 10 years, 1789 to 1799, but in particular in the early 1790s, the Jacobins unleashed an unyielding campaign against Christianity. Now, of course, they were deeply influenced by Rousseau's idea of the religion civile, civil religion. And what was their goal? What was their purpose? To eradicate Christianity in favor of a state-dominated religion. Now, under the guise of championing reason, Catholic priests were pressed into a farce, a forced allegiance to the cult of reason. We'll get into that in a sec, what that meant, which was a stark mockery of any genuine freedom. Joseph Fouché, the Jacobins' enforcer, spearheaded this vicious de-Christianization with horrifying zeal. So, what is it that they're talking about? Well, there's a lot of complex interweaving of stuff that's going on here. First of all, saying that religion should be run by the state both affirms and denies the tensions between and among the state and the church. So, of course, the general deal throughout human history is that the state grants a particular religion a monopoly on the condition that the religion affirm the legitimacy of the power of the rulers. Right? So this is a quid pro quo. We'll give you a forced monopoly over religion, but in return, your God has to affirm the legitimacy of our rule. It's really, it's an unholy bargain, but, I mean, very common throughout history. And in fact, the rise of Christianity was the rise of the opposition to polytheism, which characterized the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, there was like a street or an avenue of temples you could go down and pick and choose, like a buffet from your religions. And the Christians, one of the reasons why they were persecuted was because they would come down and say that all the other gods were false, were demons, and there was only one true God. So that was, of course, a huge challenge. One of the reasons why the church was so opposed, and I, I don't want to make this about myself. I, I simply tell personal stories so that you can see how it connects to the present and maybe to your own life as well. And let's talk about your life. Let's talk about your life. When you were growing up, did you feel that children were protected, loved, nourished, nurtured, that society fulfilled its lofty moral claims of loving the children first and foremost, above all else, doing anything for the kids? I certainly didn't feel that way. I felt that I was a piece of flotsam or jetsam or detritus tossed about by various groups jockeying for power. And of course, I went to church for many years, and the church and the priests and the congregation never asked me about the abuse that I was suffering at home, never identified my mother as an evildoer, never provided me any interest, relief, or succor. And the big challenge has been what has been or what have been the mindsets that solve the problem of child abuse. If we solve the problem of child abuse, I don't want to be one size fits all guy, you know, as soon as the workers control the means of capital, we'll have paradise. Or there was an old life is hell thing about particular graduate professors, you know, the, the, the one theory explains everything guy, you know, the whole world turns upon the price of magnesium. And then he has all of these charts and graphs to prove this. I don't want to be obviously the one size fits all one solution, one button. I, I get that there's complexity, but the world continues to be kind of hell. And the one thing that we've never done is solve the problem of child abuse. Has the church been able to do it? No. Has a state been able to do it? No. Have private charities been able to do it? No. Have I been able to do it? Well, in some instances, yes. Of course, in the vast majority of the world, no. And if you can't solve the problem of child abuse, everything else becomes managing effects rather than solving causes. It becomes a whack-a-mole of various effects. The police have to chase people down alleys because of child abuse. People who grow up without a, a pair bond end up greedy for material items because they lack fundamental security. And so they imagine that access to material items, wealth, and status and security can give them that emotional security when it won't. So this endless greed, this borrowing, this debt, the fiat currency, the greed of everyone who wants everything for free, that comes out of child abuse. I guess I do sound like a one, one theory for everything kind of guy, but 
at least there's science behind what I what I say. So people grew up and the church had been unable to solve the problem of child abuse. And the state had been unable to solve the problem of child abuse. And the problem of child abuse had escalated to the point where people had lost all humanity, all reason, and were able to rip people's genitals apart, stick them on spikes, and parade them in front of their supposed lovers' prison cells. It's about as heinous and horrifying a world as can be imagined, and it comes out of the hell of childhood. So why was there this idea to de-Christianize? There was a rage against those who claimed all of this virtue to be able to solve all of these social problems and make the world better and had fa utterly failed to do so. There's almost nothing, I think, in the human heart that generates more rage than hypocrisy. It generates more rage because hypocrisy is unsolvable. If it's an honest mistake, you correct the mistake, right? If an honest man makes a mistake, he either drops his error or he stops being honest. This reality that those who claim to be there for the children, those who claim to love their society, those who claim to shepherd people on the path to heaven had utterly failed to solve the problem of child abuse, and in fact were themselves, in many ways, in many instances, child abuse is either verbal abuse through original sin or physical abuse through beating children in school, and so on. Hypocrite can't be saved, because the hypocrite knows that he's not fulfilling his ideals and obligations, and therefore telling him he's not fulfilling his ideals and obligations will simply generate more manipulation. It won't generate any reform, and in the human heart, those with power over you who cannot be reformed must be opposed. And, of course, in the French Revolution, tragically, this opposition was violent and chaotic. It was a lashing out rather than a building towards. There is, of course, the question of power and corruption. Everybody understands it's one of these wild things about society. Everybody understands completely and deeply that power corrupts. Now, the power of the kings was corrupting. And people understood that, I think, deep down and instinctively, I ask this with some sensitivity, but even to my Christian friends here, this is a very important question. Let's just talk about a priest. The king, we understand, having the power to dispense arbitrary justice, to borrow on behalf of the people, to wage war, to conscript, to enslave, to pass decrees, is a wicked power which the human heart cannot rationally contain or flourish thereby. But if you look at the priest, let me ask you this question. Is the ability to determine whether somebody goes to eternal paradise or eternal torment, is that not too great a power for the human heart to handle? To be able to condemn people who disagree with you, to be able to condemn people to tens of thousands of years in limbo or straight to hell to be tormented and tortured for eternity. The king can torment and torture you, but only for days or weeks, usually not much longer because you, your heart will give out from the pain. But that's nothing compared to what the priest can condemn you to. Is it not too much power over another human heart to be able to either shepherd that person to paradise or to eternal torture and damnation? Even wildly abusive parents have a term limit on their abuse. The children grow up. Decade and a half, max two decades. In general, you're done. Or for violence when the children, especially the males, reach puberty and get big and strong. Is it not too much power to be able to condemn people to hell? Does that not distort one's empathy? Can you have empathy? Now, of course, I understand the argument. The priests say, listen, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you what's going to lead you to heaven or hell. But this had all been utterly unable to solve the problems of society. And when those in charge of solving the problems of society fail to solve those problems and fail to relinquish their power, they are revealed as power mongers, as power lustrous. So they say, well, you give us this power, we'll make society better. It'll be wonderful. It'll be paradise. It'll be great. It'll certainly get incrementally better over time. When society gets incrementally worse over time and the people who claim that their sole mission is to make society better don't relinquish their power, then clearly they're not interested in making society better. They're interested in one thing and one thing only, that is power. And social improvement is merely the camouflage. Like the people who say, well, we want to, in we want to reduce the inequities between the rich and the poor, which again is a coded signal to steal from the rich and give to the poor, when the gap between the rich and the poor widens and the middle class hollows out, gets destroyed, do they relinquish their power or change the course? Nope. And the reason people get so angry, I'm talking about the French Revolution here, the reason that people got so angry at the priests and the nobles, at the bishops and the kings, is because 
they were also angry at themselves. There was a collusion between the poor and the leaders. And the collusion between the poor and the leaders is the leaders say, we'll give you bread, we'll give you circuses, we'll give you succor, we'll give you relief, we'll give you charity, we'll give you welfare. But you have to support our power. Now that is a bad and immoral bargain. And everybody knows that deep down. We are full of conscience. Conscience is simply the universalization of our morals, the morals that we claim. Our conscience universalizes them in that everything is universalized. Everything becomes universalized. You don't wake up tomorrow shocked at gravity and sunshine, right? I mean, that water is wet and fire is hot. You're not shocked at these things because we universalize everything. I mean, I've seen this process in my daughter, right? She grows and the ball rolls under the couch. Initially, she just disappears for her. Eventually, she figures out that the ball is still there and she never forgets that thereafter. I mean, the ball doesn't roll under the couch now. And she says, well, that's it. I guess we have to go get another ball. It's gone into the void. It's gone into the nether. It's gone into the back rooms, as she would say. We universalize and can never escape that universalization. It will never happen. It will never happen. And the morals that we claim get universalized in our conscience. We can't escape them. And so one of the reasons why people get so angry at the elites, at the elites is that they're externalizing their own corruption and their own self-hatred. We joined in a bargain with the elites for unjust benefit, for unjust benefit. And then when the benefits diminish or disappear, we then pretend that we hate only the elites when we actually, in fact, hate ourselves. And this is why the violence grows. This is why the hysteria and the aggression tends to escalate. The government had massive control over the economy. That massive control over the economy was exercised by Everyone. If you had a guild, the government prevented competition. If you were a journeyman, if you were a tradesman, if you were a blacksmith, the government prevented competition. And you liked that. You liked the government keeping other people out. If you were an importer, the government pre prevented with import duties and bans other people from competing with you. So everybody ran to the government for unjust, unholy, coercive, violent benefits to themselves. And then when the government can no longer provide those benefits, as the devil always comes to collect, people get angry at the government. And the reason why they continue to get angry at the government and, of course, at the church is because they are projecting their own corruption onto others and imagining that if they kill others, they kill their own corruption. They kill their own conscience. It's a bargain that everybody has to participate in. And the bargain is hypocritical and foundationally hypocritical. Oh, what's that? You would like some actual examples rather than my mere polysyllabic windbaggery. Yes, fair, fine. Okay, let's do some empiricism. According to some economists, the French Revolution is an absolutely perfect example of mercantilism. Mercantilism is an economic system where the government regulates everything that people buy and sell with a set of restrictions that control exports, imports, and almost every facet of production itself. So these mercantilist decrees the French government had prior to the revolution fixed prices fixed wages, and the wages and prices were imposed by the French monarchy, and they caused this chronic famine and mass death. Taxes went up between 1730 and 1780. Prices grew 65%, while wages grew only 22%. It's kind of a chilling thing that is going on at the moment as well. So the government decided who is allowed to work, and also in what branch of industry they would labor, they decided what material should be allowed to be produced, what things, what shape they were in, what form should be given to the products. It was just crazy. Now, in the American Revolution, some soldiers were inspired by philosophers like Adam Smith and his sort of free market ideals. And the French were very aware of the free market ideals. It's just that people liked using the power of the state to gain themselves, to gain their benefits. And of course, France went into fiscal crisis because of the national debt. The government is spending more money controlling and raising fewer or less money through taxes. Just in 1789, on the eve of the revolution, the government itself spent half of its annual revenues just to pay the interest on their debts. Crazy. And we talked about this before. The new commodity was introduced called the assignat in the French Revolution. And of course, that hit hyperinflation, caused people to exchange food for services, they went to barter rather than money itself. And of course, when you have barter, you have the endless task of trying to find who wants to match your needs rather than having a currency that mediates that. It's just brutal. And in the 
six-year period, 1789 to 1795, you had increasing restrictions. But then finally, in 1795, some liberty in property production and industry was returned back to the citizens. And it's just horrendous. People want the unjust. It cripples their future. They blame others, never themselves. All the people who use the government for their own benefit to gain something at the expense of their fellow man, of their fellow woman, and particularly of their children. All those people who run to the government for benefits are part of a corrupt bargain. And what drives the government's power is people's desire for the unearned. And then, when it turns out that was a bad bargain, a bad deal, and because they've run to the government for protection from competition, they've run to the government for artificially higher income in the short term, they cripple the economy in the long term, the economy stops providing, stops generating, stops producing. And do they say to themselves, I should not have gone for unjust benefits? You know, in the Middle Ages, in certain places, in a farmer's market, in a stall, in a village square where everybody had set up their wares, you weren't even allowed to sneeze. Because if, if, as a vendor, if you sneeze, somebody has to say bless you, and then you enter into conversation and you sell your wares. Weren't even allowed to sneeze. That was considered unfair competition. So people run to the state for unjust benefits, enjoy those unjust benefits for a time, destroy the economy over time as these inefficiencies went their way through and cripple and paralyze the economy. And then rather than say, wow, I really should have let a free market reign, I shouldn't have used this power for my own benefit at the expense of my citizens because now that expense is boomeranging back and threatens my life with its spinning scimitar approach. I should have been better I should have said, thou shalt not steal. I should have respected the commandment of the wages of sin is death. I have messed up. I've been tempted by Satanism. <laughs> I've been tempted to get what I have not earned. I should reform. If they had done that, then there would have been free markets and the economy would have survived. But they wouldn't do that. What they did was they said, the corruption is not within me. The corruption is not that I beat my children or hung them on hooks or, or put them in these tight swaddles or screamed at them or tortured them mentally with threats of hellfire and damnation or told them they were evil for drawing breath. The corruption is never in me, they say. It's never in me. Where is the corruption? Oh, that guy in the funny hat. That guy who has the culottes. That guy who has the big house. That guy. He's, he's the bad guy. Never me. It's never me. And let's go kill the bad guy. And the human tendency to murder someone on the other end of an immoral bargain and think that the immorality has been slaughtered as well it's why there's human sacrifice, of course, right? And why, in a slightly more advanced society or slightly less primitive society, human sacrifice gets transformed into animal sacrifice, the scapegoat, right? You put all of the tribe's sins into the goat, you kill the goat, and you think you have killed the sins, but the sins continue. In fact, they flourish because there's this artificial outlet. Could they look and say, I have beaten my children, I have abused my children, I have neglected my children, and I have run to the state for unjust benefits, and I have charged my neighbor with unfair competition for simply exercising his own private property rights and competing with me, that I am the source of the corruption in my world. Did they look in the mirror? Nope. The demagogues came along and said, the reason you're suffering is because of everyone else's corruption. You are holy and pure, made of gold and silver and brilliantine, and you shine like the morning star. You are holy and pure, but oh, these bad people, they're totally corrupt and they've exploited you and they've done bad things to you. And, and then you go and you attack the people that the demagogue points at as the cause of your suffering when the cause of your suffering is in your own heart, it's in your own history, it's in your own fists, it's in your own greed. Because the arguments for the free market were circling in France as they were everyone else in the 18th century. The arguments for the free market, for reduction of state power, the inefficiencies of centrally planned economies, they were all circulating in this environment. And they were rejected by the people, and that crippled the economy, destroyed the economy, they starved. And also when the king comes and says, oh, these are the bad, dastardly enemies, and we have to go and fight them, the, the, the foreigners, the armies, they're threatening, they're terrible, they're evil, they're doing all of these horrible things, and we have to fight them as agents of virtue and light and goodness. The people cheer, the people grab weapons, and war is the health of the state. To look in the mirror and say, 
my moral sense demands that I focus my ethical efforts on that which I can most control, which is me, the guy in the mirror. Man in the mirror, you know, that cheesy song, right? And people don't want to do that. They would rather externalize their bad conscience onto someone else, murder that other person, attack the reputation of that other person, destroy his livelihood, his source of income, and say, well, I'm better now. It's unbelievably common. And it's one of the greatest impediments to the progress of morality. Is any progress on morality provokes a bad conscience. Demagogues come in and say, the reason you feel bad is because of this guy. Attack him and you'll be fine. You're attacking evil and preserving virtue. People fall for it. I, I swear to the great universe above, people fall for this 9,999 times out of 10,000. And the one guy who doesn't fall for it generally gets swept up at the conflagration. So, all right, let's talk about the cult of reason. So, there were basically two. There was the cult of reason and then there was the cult of the supreme being. In 1793, radical journalist Jacques Hébert and his followers founded the cult of reason. And this was a secular religion, religion dedicated to celebrating liberty, rationalism, empirical truth, and a lot of the other values that were promulgated by the Enlightenment. It was an atheist church, foundationally. Think of a church of science or a church of reason. And this is where, what's the book, Voltaire's Bastards, I remember reviewing when I was in university. This is where reason gets a bad rap. And let's just be honest about it, it, it sort of deserves it. So the cult of reason had congregational services, symbolism, worship, sermons, but the people there denied the existence of any God or gods or mysticism or supernatural forces or saints or anything like that. The cult of reason became quite popular among intellectuals and the sans alike. Now, the Jacobin-dominated convention from about mid-1793 onwards gave its tacit approval to the cult of reason, and then there was, in Notre-Dame Cathedral on November 10th, 1793, the Festival of Reason, and we'll get to that. Oh, no, let's do that. Let's do that part now. The Festival of Reason. I guess version 2.0 of this was called the Cult of the Supreme Being. So Maximilian Rose Pierre was horrified by the Festival of Reason because he said, there's no God. There has to be a God. Can't have a religion without a God. So it was created by Maximilian Rose Pierre, this Cult of the Supreme Being, and given formal status by the National Convention in May of 1794. It's amazing how quickly this stuff comes and goes, and it's even quicker how this one goes. So, the cult of the supreme being was this wild project, and what did it want to do? Well, we're going to formulate a national religion based on a deism, right? So, deism is an enlightenment idea that God created the universe and its laws. It, God exists, but does not interfere in the affairs of society of men, of women. There's no one to pray to. He simply is, winds up the watch and watches it, watches it go forward, so to speak. So there was deism, republican values, patriotism, and so on. So the purpose of the supreme being movement, the cult of the supreme being for Robespierre, was to educate and enlighten the French people on morals and virtues. So he said, oh yeah, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but the idea was, look, people need their ceremonies, they need their lectures, they need their pretty houses to worship in. So then, we're going to have this cult of the supreme being. People are going to come to the church. They're going to participate in the ceremonies. They're going to listen to the lecturers. And they're going to come to understand all of these wonderfully deep enlightenment fundamental connections between citizenship, uh, morality, religion, republican government, and it's just all going to get united. And it didn't last very long. Right? So when did it get started? May 1794. When did it die? July 1794, <laughs> so May, June, July, okay, two to three months. Now, and if it was late, right, could have been one and a bit. Now, why are we talking about something with such a short lifespan? Well, Robespierre said, look, France can't have a virtuous government until the people are taught morality and virtue. The revolutionary government must lead this process by engaging in, and I, and I quote, the art of enlightening them, the people, and making them better. Well, you can't get that through atheism. You've got to get that through the inclusive movement. People call it a cult, inclusive movement. And you've got to have these. You've got to acknowledge a divine creator, patriotic ceremonies. And what did he say? So May 7th, 
Robespierre rose in the convention and delivered one of, most, one of his most famous speeches. Say, oh, here's what we've done. Here's what we've achieved. Oh, and by the way, virtue and terror are one and the same. Now, again, why would they unite virtue and terror? Because they, as children, had been taught virtue through emotional and physical terrorism. And I say terrorism here because it ended up changing politics enormously. Terrorism being the use of violence to alter political outcomes. At Robespierre's behest, the convention passed a decree on the supreme being. 1794. So what did the decree do? Well, it said there is a supreme being and legislated for its worship. And let's go through this piece by piece. Very interesting. One, the French people recognize the existence of the supreme being and the immortality of the soul. I mean, now you're legislating people's beliefs. And when you legislate people's beliefs, you criminalize criticism, right? This is the hate speech thing, right? You criminalize criticism when you say, this is true. Two, and again, they're speaking on behalf of the French people. They're now legislating the contents of other people's minds. They are saying that other people believe things that they may have never even heard the argument for. Two, the French people, they recognize that the worship worthy of the supreme being is the practice of the duties of man. Yeah, this is the French people. They believe this. They recognize that. Pen to paper, thought to mind. Three, the French people, they place in the first rank of these duties the obligation to detest bad faith and tyranny, to punish tyrants and traitors, to rescue the unfortunate, to respect the weak, to defend the oppressed, and to do to others all the good that one can and not to be unjust toward anyone. So this is adjective worship, right? Oh, just be kind, be nice, be positive, oppose injustice, fight evil, pursue good. I mean, it's all just nonsense. It's all just absolutely dangerous nonsense, right? To punish traitors. Ooh, when the government says you have to punish traitors, I wonder if the government will ever define itself as the traitor or if it will define anybody who criticizes the government as a traitor. Hmm, I wonder, I wonder. And this is sophistry because it's positive sounding words rather than recent arguments. Four, festivals shall be established to remind man of the thought of the divinity and of the dignity of his being. Right. So, because it's a state religion, whenever you hear the divinity, you can just replace the state. Right. You can just replace the state with the divinity because the divinity is not going to speak for itself, but the state is going to speak on behalf of the divinity. So we're back to the divine right of kings. The divine right of kings. The state sanctifies its actions through unquestionable and mystical morality, which is not morality at all, it's just corruption. Five, they shall take their names from the glorious events of our revolution, from the virtues most dear and most useful to man, and from the great benefactions of nature. So these festivals shall take their names from the glorious events of our time. So virtues most dear, the virtues that you love, the virtues that you like, the virtues that you prefer, the virtues that you are most addicted to. Self-righteousness, of course, is the virtue that people are most addicted to, which is that my feelings make things right. That the divine right of kings is replaced by the divine right of emotions. That I feel offended, therefore you're bad. I feel upset, therefore you are aggressive. I don't like this, therefore anybody who supports it is immoral. Virtues most dear and most useful to man. So we have emotionalism and utilitarianism. The virtues most useful to man. <laughs> most useful. What are the virtues most useful to man? It, that's who prefers it for a positive end. Well, when you give the government the power to define virtue, what is the most useful virtue for the government to define? Well, that all who oppose the government are traitors. Seven, it shall celebrate on the days of Dekadi festivals to the supreme being and to nature, to the human race, to the French people, to the benefit. You're ready for the big list of sophistic nonsense, right? Okay, so this is what it shall celebrate. To nature, to the human race, to the French people, to the benefactors of humanity, to the martyrs of liberty, to liberty and equality, to the republic and to the liberty of the world, to the love of country, to the hatred of tyrants and traitors, to truth, to justice, to modesty, to glory and immortality, to friendship, to frugality, to courage, to good faith, to heroism, to disinterestedness, to stoicism, to love, to conjugal love, to paternal love, to maternal tenderness, to filial piety, to childhood, to youth, to manhood, to old age, to misfortune, to agriculture, to industry, to our forefathers, to posterity, to happiness. Oh, my God. What a cavalcade of treacly, tentacle squid, serrated language and nonsense. To never stubbing your toe. 
to never getting dust blown in your eyes, to a lack of insect bites, to all that is good, and do a good night's sleep. <laughs> Two muscles without exercise. <laughs> to sex without consequences. My gosh. And here they say, to paternal love, to maternal tenderness. You see, everybody knows you've got to love your kids or bad things happen. I mean, not just in your household, but in society as a whole. So, yeah. I mean, this is mom and apple pie. This is, you know, honesty. Yeah, sure. I'm, 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 yeah, justice sounds great. Yeah, truth. Yeah, modesty. Yeah, oh, yeah, hatred of tyrants and traitors. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it sounds, I mean, how, this is not arguments. These are threats. These are threats. Because what happens is people think that by approving this stuff, that they gain all the benefits of truth and justice and all. And then if you point out, right, this is arming the population against the free thinkers, against the questioners, the skeptics, the those possessed of the capacity for Socratic reasoning, because you get people addicted. Oh, I, I, I like this stuff, therefore I'm a good person. And then when you point out that this is all just nonsense, it doesn't mean anything, and it's a drug, and then they attack you for taking away their drug, their drug of, oh, good feelings, feel good. All right, the committees of public safety and public instruction Oh, ominous. The committees of public safety and public instruction are charged to present a plan of organization for these festivals. Nine, the National Convention summons all talents worthy to serve the cause of humanity to the honor of contributing to their establishment by hymns and patriotic songs, by all means, which can further their beauty and utility. Yeah, see? Do they want reasoned arguments from first principles? Do they want UPB? Do they want skepticism? Nope. What do they want? Hymns and songs. Hymns and songs. So just by the by, just so you understand this, hymns and songs are a way of programming you, right? I mean, you understand this, right? You hear the Christmas songs of your childhood and you, you get all the emotions of the childhood. And generally we are programmed by repetition. And so if we listen to and sing a lot of songs, it just creates grooves in our brains. The train tracks of state power can then ride unopposed in a direction that's already preordained. So. Yeah, songs program you for sure. 10. The Committee of Public Safety shall confer distinction upon those works which seem the most suited to fulfill these purposes and shall reward their authors. Oh, yes, the government is going to pay the artists. I wonder if you're going to end up with any state skeptical art out of that. Not really. Uh, liberty of worship is maintained in conformity with the decree of 18th Primaire. That's, I assume, one new revolutionary calendar. 12. Every gathering that is aristocratic and contrary to public order shall be suppressed. You see, they have to throw in aristocratic. And contrary to public order shall be suppressed. Right. So they program people to be addicted to nonsense. And then when people gather to discuss how nonsensical the nonsense is, that's contrary to public order because it upsets the people addicted to nonsense. Uh, people fight to defend their programming even more than their honor. 13. In case of disturbances, of which any worship whatsoever may be the occasion or motive, those who may excite them by fanatical preaching or by counter-revolutionary insinuations or by gratuitous violence shall likewise be punished with the severity of the law. And this is what they always do, right? They'll throw in gratuitous violence. Okay, well, we're all against gratuitous violence. Fanatical preaching? Well, saying that you have the power to will the entire contents of French consciousness and create an entirely new religion out of thin air with a state decree, that could be considered somewhat fanatical preaching, right? So, gratuitous violence, yeah. Fanatical preaching, I don't even know what that means, but certainly this would be one. Or by counter-revolutionary insinuations. Oh, no. Even questioning the revolution, punished with the severity of the law. So, you have freedom of worship as long as you worship the God that is us, the God that is me. 15. A festival in honor of the Supreme Being shall be celebrated upon 20th Prairie. Next. So, yeah. Well, atheism, Robespierre said, oh, it dissolves the bonds of society. It leads people to believe that the fate of society is decided by accident, by blind chance. Society is then left at the mercy of the strongest and the most clever. I mean, it's I, I, I could go on, but it's all just such goopy vicious nonsense that it's hard to hard to know what what this what this what this means at all so the supreme being does that is that what robespierre genuinely believed or was it an attempt as most sophists do to use religion to enhance his own power eh, i mean who cares doesn't really matter it's all nonsense so whether people believe nonsense or not is less important to a philosopher than whether it is or is not nonsense 
I mean, there's some evidence that Robespierre believed in God and the immortality of the soul. And like the other Jacobins, Robespierre had been very strong, a strong critic of the church, but he generally criticized the higher clergy, not the doctrines themselves. Robespierre did support the civil constitution of the clergy. It took away the economic privileges of the church and removed prelates from political power. But Robespierre had often defended the local clergy, parish priests and friars and so on. So, anyway, this cult of the supreme being lasted about as long as Robespierre, which is about another six weeks. And, you know, maybe if he'd lasted longer, it would have lasted longer. But, of course, the other thing, too, is that Robespierre said, oh, yeah, there's this supreme being cult. And, oh, just, you know, footnote, just word to the wise, I'm, I'm in charge of it. Uh, I'm, I'm in charge. So several deputies who attended the festival said that Robespierre showed some significant signs of grandiosity, delusions, megalomania, and so on. And the fact that he had created this religion with himself as its prelate, or in fact its god perhaps, contributed to the push to get rid of Robespierre in late July. And after he was executed in July, the Thermidorian Convention said, we're not really going to talk about this movement, and then without a sponsor without a charismatic leader, without a creator, soon died a pretty natural death. Jacques Alexis Thuriot, an aging politician, was not impressed by Robespierre's speeches and histrionics. Look at that bugger, said Thuriot. It's not enough for him to be in charge. He has to be God. He also has to have an English accent for some vague reason that I can't explain right now, but I'm just going to roll with it. I just need to differentiate himself from my vague British accent. So the festival of the Supreme Being the speech is worth looking at in, in a little bit of detail. So in June of 1794, he led a procession up an artificial mountain in the Tuileries, the culmination of the Festival of the Supreme Being. From the very top, the summit, the peak of the mountain, Robespierre gave a speech. The day forever fortunate has arrived, which the French people have consecrated to the Supreme Being. Never has the world which he created offered to him a spectacle so worthy of his notice. He has seen reigning on this earth Tyranny, crime, and impostors. He sees at this moment a whole nation grappling with all the oppressions of the human race suspend the course of its heroic labors to elevate its thoughts and vows towards the great being who has given it the mission it has undertaken and the strength to accomplish it. He did not create kings to devour the human race. He did not create priests to harness us like vile animals to the chariots of kings and to give to the world examples of baseness, pride, perfidy, avarice, debauchery, and falsehood. He created the universe to proclaim his power. He created men to help each other, to love each other mutually, and to attain to happiness by the way of virtue. Republican Frenchmen, it is yours to purify the earth which they have soiled, and to return the justice that they have banished. Liberty and virtue together came from the breast of divinity. Neither can abide with mankind without the other. The monster which the genius of kings had vomited over France has gone back into nothingness. I think this means the Christian church, Christian religion, Christian God. Frenchmen, you war against kings. You are therefore worthy to honor divinity. Hatred of bad faith and tyranny burns in our hearts with love of justice and the fatherland. Blood flows for the cause of humanity. Behold our prayer. Behold our sacrifices. Behold the worship we offer thee. Right. This is all just dopamine drug nonsense. And uh, incredibly dangerous, right? Uh, traitors and false hearts and hypocrites. This is all just labels. They say, well, I'm going to have these labels. I'm going to program the thoughtless masses to hate these labels. And then they'll attack you at will when I attach these labels to anyone. It was like the, I don't know, white supremacist language of the day. Whatever labels they can attach to you, that will cause the mob to attack you. Dragging people with positive language is threatening, right? Because you create positive language to bribe people with dopamine, honorable, patriotic, virtuous. And then you create the angels of, of positive language. You create the devils of negative language. And you get people addicted to false positives. Then they will attack anyone who's labeled as a false negative, right? In, in the same way that if you get people addicted to drugs, they will attack anybody who wants to ban those drugs. You will get attacked. They will attack anyone who wants to interfere with the delivery of those drugs. You get addicted to the drug dealer. And therefore, when the drug dealer says, I'm going to withhold these drugs from you unless you attack this person, you just attack this person. 
right? So they're programming you with dopamine, and then they will get they will threaten the withdrawal of that dopamine if you don't attack their enemies. So, all right. So big attack, the dechristianization of France. Big attack on the clergy. So what happened? So a mere fraction of clergy resisted all of this, but about forty thousand were courageous enough to either oppose the regime or leave France. Now, it wasn't just the clergy who was attacked. Religious symbols were also attacked and faced blasphemous defacement. Even the iconic Notre-Dame Cathedral couldn't escape the revolutionaries' wrath. Its historic artworks were ruined with heedless abandon. Indeed, the very term vandalism was birthed from the mindless destruction of the historic Saint-Denis. The once-revered resting places of monarchs faced desecration, and church valuables dismissed as insults to reason were looted. Churches were transformed into revolutionary hubs. Mockeries abounded, altars were rebranded as altars of reason, and crosses, now viewed as subversive, were eradicated from the public sphere. Fouché, formerly a Catholic education supporter, emerged as a vehement opponent of Christianity, condemning it as mere superstition. So why did they use the term reason? Well, they had to have something, something that was positive, and the word reason had become a positive term. Through the Enlightenment and through the success to be fair, obviously, through the success of science and the scientific method and rational approaches to agriculture, reason had become a positive word. And so the revolutionaries seized upon a positive word, not because they believed in reason, but because they knew that it was a word that had a positive view on other people. They believed and they knew that it had a positive effect on other people. So they just grab this word. Oh, people like reason? Oh yeah, we're totally for reason. Reason is what we're all about. In the same way that equality of opportunity, well, the word equality then becomes a positive word because of equality opportunity and the universality of human rights, and then they sort of switch it to equality of outcome, which is generally theft, and they say, well, we're totally for equality. Oh, people like the word equality? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're totally for equality, right? So justice is equality of opportunity, social justice is equality outcome, and so people say, oh, people view the word social, the phrase social justice as positive. Oh, yeah, we're totally for social, social just whatever's floating around that's positive people seize upon. And reason here, what does it mean? What does it mean? What does reason mean when, they, when they're literally passing laws to say what tens of millions of people believe with no evidence? I mean, it's not rational, not empirical. So what does reason mean? Well, it's hatred for the failed morals of the past. And, of course, those morals were not built on reason, right? I mean, the effects of the clergy and the effects of the aristocracy, they were not built on reason. But reason here generally means animal, mammal, greed, physicality, our selection. So, in response to the de-Christianization effort, Lyon residents clung to their arms and faith, rebelling steadfastly. A convention deputy proposed leveling Lyon after its defiance, suggesting a monument proclaiming its end. Fouché passionately advocated for the entire obliteration of Leon, quote, for humanity's sake, thus embracing terror as the new norm. He orchestrated mass execution, including bankers, intellectuals, elites, clergymen, and women and children, with ruthless firing squads. Why do they hate the bankers? Well, they hate the bankers for two reasons. One is that the bankers are doing well, and secondly, that the bankers enforce interest rates, and sometimes, of course, criminal levels of interest rates, which are inflicted on the poor. Of course, the poor who are irresponsible, who drink away their land, end up losing their land, and they lose their land to bankers who may have given them loans. So there's a lot of hatred to that. It's like the problem of the tenants and the landlords in a democracy. The tenants outnumber and outvote the landlords, and it dislike the landlords because the tenants are generally voting for free stuff, which means the government raises taxes, which means the landlords raise rent, which means that the tenants hate not their own corruption and demand or desire for free stuff, but they hate the landlords because then they attack the landlords and all that sort of stuff, right? Intellectuals, elites, clergymen. Right. Right. Why did people, this sort of goes back to the original argument, right? Why did the people support the murder of the middle class, of the intellectuals? Because the middle class had better childhoods, had improved parenting, and left everyone else behind. They retreated to their own world. They did not go back to save anyone. And it's like, it's like this. It's like there's an illness across the land that is taking people down, and it takes decades to kill them in the most 
undermining and hideous agony that can be imagined. It drives them mad with pain before finishing off their bodies, and it takes decades. And there's a cure. There's a cure. And a few people have that cure, but they only give that cure among themselves and to their own children, and they escape into walled-off communities, into gated communities. With this cure, they hoard the cure, and they only give it to themselves. And this is what's so awful is the cure is free. They hoard the cure for themselves. They refuse to give the cure to others. And the horrifying thing is that the cure is free. Can you imagine watching your children die of a plague, knowing that there was a free cure being hoarded by other people on the other side of town? Wouldn't you want to slaughter them as well? Wouldn't you feel that level of anger and rage that they had the capacity to save you, to save your children, but they hoarded the cure for themselves when it cost them nothing to share the cure? You would perceive them as having murdered you and your children by withholding a cure that cost them nothing to provide and you would feel murderous towards them. This is the cost of having a better childhood without sharing how to have better childhoods to others. Breaking the chain of violence, breaking the cycle of violence. I mean, if I had hoarded my formulations for a better childhood and how to become a better parent and how to deal with childhood pain, if I had hoarded that for myself, well, my conscience would have been appalling. I always want to circle back and help people through some innate characteristics, through some luck, through some work. I came across the solution to childhood pain, how to break the cycle of violence, how to break the cycle of abuse. The idea that I would hoard that within my own family and not share it, though it costs, well, it's a little costly. I mean, the sort of it costs nothing is a bit of an illusion. It is costly to share it because when you share how to have a better childhood, the abusive parents don't like you so much. But the alternative is what? Just continue to have this cycle of violence from forever. So why? Why did they hate the people who were doing better? Why did they hate the people who had better childhoods? Why did they hate the people who hoarded the recipe for breaking the cycle of violence? Because they'd been left behind. Because the other people had discovered a cure, absconded to parts unknown, hoarded their cure, and kept it from the poor. So, what happened? This is from historian David Andres. On the 4th of December, 1789, 60 men chained together were blasted with grape shot on the plain de Bordeaux outside the city of Lyon, and 211 more the following day. Grossly ineffective, these mitrades resulted in heaps of mutilated, screaming, half-dead victims who were finished off with sabers and musket fires by soldiers physically sickened at the task. A Jacobin named Philip shockingly displayed the decapitated heads of his own parents to the legislative assembly. He cold-bloodedly claimed to have murdered them in a zealous fit of patriotism, all because they declined to participate in a revolutionary church service. And of course, you see this in all these kinds of revolutions, particularly the communist revolutions, which is children are willing to turn in their own parents, murder their own parents, subject their own parents to these. Why was someone willing to murder his own parents? Can we imagine a child raised with love and connection and bonding killing his own parents? No. And you see this, of course, all the time in these revolutionary movements. The revolutionary movements on the left tend to be incredibly hostile towards parents. Revolutionary movements on the right tend to be more parent positive. But you see this, of course, in the communist revolution, in the Cambodian revolution, where children are very easily turned against their parents and they attack their parents, condemn their parents, torture, attack, or even murder their parents, subject their parents to endless struggle sessions to accept the new ideology. Why is it? that the children hate their parents so much? Why is it that they're so eager and willing to denounce their own parents? And you can see this, of course, now, when parents are racist and conservative and terrible and anti-egalitarian. It's a very sort of common thing. So why? Well, what did their parents do to them that they're willing to attack their parents? They seize not upon the justice and objectivity and reason and evidence of the revolution. They seize on something which allows them to give vent to their hatred against their parents it gives it ideological cover. So people look at these ideologies and say, wow, you know, these ideologies really, really, they really convince people to do bad things. Nope. The people want to do bad things. They were formally restrained by Christianity. When the restraint of Christianity goes away, 
They seize upon the new ideologies as a way of acting out their existing hatreds, their existing passions. In vino veritas, in wine there is truth. The drunk man or woman will tell the truth. Because alcohol is a disinhibitor, which is why cold-hearted people will express mawkish affection when drunk. And people who seem to be funny will get angry and bitter when drunk, because it's a disinhibitor. Ideology does not create feelings. It disinhibits their action. You now have justification for acting on the feelings you've always had. This is why trying to change the ideology without trying to change the source of the feelings, the childhood and the parenting, is foolish beyond words. Now, of course, the French revolutionaries weren't just content only with their own transformation and transformation of France. France. They attempted to really force their radical views on unsuspecting nations. In November 1792, they brazenly released the Edict of Fraternity, beckoning citizens of other nations to revolt against their established leadership. This, of course, is similar to what happens with the socialism in Russia. International socialism, the socialism in Germany, the National Socialist, the Nazis, was a nationalistic socialism, not designed for export, but international socialism. So this is a huge problem. The interplay of how difficult it is to have progress in society is very important. If you try to improve parenting, all the bad parents attack you and run to the state to get you condemned or killed or exiled. If you try to bring peaceful parenting or some other major benefit to society as a whole, then other societies, the elites of which are profiting from the bad situation or system, will attack you, right? So if you liberalize your economy and people end up doing much better, then what happens is, particularly in an age when movement was free in a way, freer in a way, it wasn't exactly the Schengen zone, but you could move to another country fairly easily. And so what happens is if you liberalize your own economy, then the neighboring states get a brain drain. All of the smart and talented people flee, and they're left with the dullards and the duds and the dunderheads. And so they will attack the other country in an attempt to rescue their own most productive livestock who fled to freer pastures. It's very tough. It's very tough to become free. I mean, certainly my own journey towards true liberty cost me every relationship from the first half of my life. It cost me every relationship for the first half of my life. Now, I happen to be in a society where I can develop new friendships, new relationships. I have some mobility. I have the internet. I have means of communications and, and so on, right? It was not so possible in the past. You always needed the support of those around you. It was very hard to escape your social situation or social circle. So it was very hard to improve anything. The sabotage that comes from the primitive people who surround you should you ascend to a more civilized state is prodigious, powerful, deep, and quite scary at times.